Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. Let's get started. Anyway, we should have a podcast. I mean, if we're going to, we, we probably should. Okay. So what's going on with you, Dave? Uh, not a whole heck of a lot. I'm, I'm gearing up for trying to get started again, but just keep bumping into distractions. Um, it's... It's reached the stage where it's the distractions are really, really annoying, but I'm still getting distracted. Nice. <laughs> That's not exceptionally helpful. Um, how's things at your yeah. end? Pretty good. I think um, I don't. I don't know if this is quite what you're talking about, but sometimes I will just kind of be done working for a while, and then I will pick up one of my hobbies like reading or watching anime or researching a specific topic and I will do that obsessively for a couple of days or a week you know maybe watch a hundred episodes of anime in a week like, <laughs> okay that's enough anime for the quarter and then I'll just kind of be done with that for a while I'm like okay time to go back to work I've been doing that recently with a lot of my fiction reading yeah. um, it used to be that I always had one or two books going basically constantly. And now I will read four books in five days and then read hardly anything for pleasure for the next two weeks. I don't know. Yeah. I've always, I've always been much more of a, a steady hour to an hour and a half a day reader. Mm -hmm. Over the last couple of months, I've really dialed that down to just focus on learning more. I'm still reading a lot, but it's reading documentation and programming books. doesn't quite scratch the same itch. But it's what I need to do. Yeah. So I understand you finished the Wenderlich book. Yes. So I finished that Monday and Tuesday last week. Um, and like we talked about, there was some of it that I just read through quickly and some of it that I worked through. And... Took a lot out of it. The so there was four sections left to go through. There was two D platforming, Blender, a tower defense game that had a virtual reality chapter as part of the section, but the game itself wasn't necessarily just a VR game. And then there was the appendices, which honestly I think I took the most out of those three chapters. Um, maybe for the entire book, those three chapters are probably worth just buying the book really just a ton of information packed into three short chapters about c sharp about the unity api and code editors and uh just the you know differences between visual studio and mono develop and that one was pretty quick the unity api stuff just a lot of really good stuff there um just the common stuff you're going to run up against the most and then there's the the c sharp was just a crash course lesson on c sharp and unity so yeah, um, I guess starting with the 2D platformer stuff, that was one I intentionally didn't work through. In fact, I just threw the PDF on my iPad and went to the park and just walked around and sat on benches uh, as I read that. It was about 100 pages. And then, uh, yeah, pretty basic stuff. If I ever do a 2D game, then I know where to go to brush up on it, but it wasn't too dissimilar from what I did in Sprite Kit in Xcode. 
definitely more advanced than Sprite Kit and a bit more coherent. Like, oh, they've actually designed this and uh, it makes sense the way that it works. But uh wasn't really anything that I'm going to do. It would be almost kind of cruel to make a 2D VR game. Like, hey, you just put this headset on and go into this immersive world and maybe show you a, a super realistic 3D environment splash screen and then just jam a giant screen like 10 inches from your face. There you go. Play a 2D game in VR. Now I kind of want to do it just because. Yeah, I, I <laughs> that kind of seemed inspiring, Joe. I don't, I don't know like, if I want to release huh. that. But. Like, yeah. I, I, I bet you could do something really interesting there. I'm thinking of like layers of sprites in a 2D game, but you mm. let the layers have visual difference between them. So you just every increasing layer in the Z layering would introduce like a quarter inch of space. <laughs> and so these things yeah. would be kind of floating over each other. And I don't know. Could be neat. Yeah. One of the games I want to make someday or just general overall game concept that I want to make someday is kind of a combination of a VR game and a 2D platformer. Where I'm in VR and I'm, say I'm basically in Mario's position, I'm walking down the level and doing whatever I need to do, fighting the battles and jumping over things. And you or somebody else is outside of VR on another screen and you can see things that I can't. Right. And I can see things that you can't. So we have to kind of work together to solve the game. Or maybe it's just a spectator thing. Maybe you just you mean, take turns in the headset and you can still see things that I can't, but you're cruel and don't want to help me things like that. I think that would be a lot of fun. There was a game that I saw a demo of. I don't recall the name of it. It was, it was, I think it was more of a proof of concept at this stage than anything else, but they had a full VR like first person shooter, but then they also had support for people using their phones, not really in an AR sort of way, but in a, as a motion controller, Sort mm-hmm. of thing. So you would you would look through the screen. It was kind of like AR or phone based VR, but you would basically move the phone around, looking around in the room, and then you could fire your guns from there. So it was like you had a little portal onto the same VR space that the VR person was playing in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so even if you weren't in the game, you could still participate. They were trying to get around the problem where, for the most part, like in a single room, VR makes a relatively iffy party game experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some fun stuff there. Um, there was a couple things I picked up about Unity from that section. Mm-hmm. There's a couple highlights I took, but for the most part, it was just you know, reading through it as quickly as possible. Like, I'm not really going to use this and just charging blindly ahead. Mm -hmm. So Um, it'll be really interesting. I think to ask you in say six months, what you think of the Wenderlich book mm -hmm. after you've had more time and you can look back on it and go, okay, how good a starting point was it? But 
I'd still like to get a baseline for comparison. So as a whole, not just individual chapters or whatever like that, but as a whole, what did you think of the Wenderlich book as a starting point for unity? Um, it works for me. It definitely, they teach in a way that is good for me and having a written, having written material over video is good for me. The videos are helpful for certain things, especially as I'm learning and learning more and more about Maya. I find watching somebody do something visual is much more helpful than trying to read through, you know, 15 paragraphs of what can be summed up in a 10 second YouTube clip. Mm-hmm. But for understanding unity, understanding the concepts behind it and how it's architected and put together and how everything ties together in the editor and how the component system works and the event system works reading through that and working through it with the book is a much better way for me to learn. Not everybody is like that, but I would rather read given the choice. I'd almost always rather read than watch a video. Um, overall, I think it's, it's done a lot to prepare me. I don't think I'm anywhere near just opening unity and just kind of knowing what to do. Mm -hmm. Like there's still pretty much a lot of thinking what thinking like, okay, I know what I want to do, how to get started. Um, a lot of Googling, a lot of figuring stuff as I go, but I know enough now to know my way around and to know the big picture stuff of just kind of how it all works. It's going to be one of those books. Like when I did, did their Sprite kit book, I referred to it constantly as I was working on the Random Arrow project. Mm-hmm. And so I've taken just a ton of highlights in this book. And usually when I do a tutorial series or a book, I keep all my notes in a separate markdown file. This time I did a, did the entire thing in preview and just highlighted the sections that I wanted and did inline notes. So everything is just in this one PDF. Mm. I'm almost tempted to buy the, when I buy the book, I will set that copy aside and then ask for a copy of yours. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty good stuff. Um, there was, in terms of the, the quality of the book itself, the first two sections, the getting started section and the first person shooter section. So there's the, basically two, two different games, the bobblehead wars and then, a robot rampage um those two were probably the the best sections and i think they were kind of the main guy working on the book the sections after that were all done by different authors and different editing teams and just you know varying degrees of just different styles of teaching different styles of coding in this in section five the tower defense game the people who wrote that one they really, really, really like singletons, and they used them a lot. And <laughs> having spent enough time in the Apple dev community, I felt like no one ever told me this. It was never offered as a threat, but I felt like if I wrote a singleton in Swift, I was going to be shot. Like, don't do it. <laughs> it's it's not that severe. Are you sure? Uh, uh, there are certainly people for whom it is that severe. I've never risked it. Like I, I don't want the singleton ninjas to bang my door down. And no, 
just it's been scary. But in Unity, they're pretty common, especially among game managers. It's kind of the easiest way to make a game manager. Um, and they're right in the Unity documentation, so it's you know perfectly acceptable design pattern. It's just weird how different communities form kind of almost dogmatic ideas about certain things. Yeah, I I mean, they even within Apple's APIs, they use singletons here and there. Generally, it seems, and I'm kind of talking out of my tail end here, but generally it seems when the thing that is being represented is only a singleton and is only ever a singleton, will they expose the interface as a singleton? So you get it with things like a shared hardware manager. You know, this code is running on one and only one computer. Therefore, every piece of code on this machine, if it wants to know what kind of computer it's running on, doesn't really have to instantiate its own representation of that hardware. It just asks the operating system for the shared hardware manager device thing. Yeah. And you get a pointer to that thing and then you can go ahead and ask it questions. You know, so it's not like you never ever can use a singleton though. They hardly ever call them singletons. It's shared thingies. I don't think that's the official term. (laughs) (laughs) The shared part is the thingy part less. So yeah. Um, Yeah. I know. I know where like these ideas come from of like whenever a a specific group of people or a community has a very strong opinion of what not to do. It's Mm -hmm. usually because it's a common pitfall for new developers or people starting out on that platform. Mm -hmm. So there's a ton of things in FileMaker that no one should ever do until you know enough about FileMaker and then it's fine. Right. Um, But there are, it's been a couple of years since I've spent a lot of time on the FileMaker forums, but there were just a lot of times where somebody would post a question and one of the experienced developers, but maybe not one of the friendliest developers would just post a giant rant about how no one should ever do that. Mm-hmm. And you've been horribly misled. You're making terrible choices. And are you sure you want to be a FileMaker developer? Cause this mm-hmm. may not be for you. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny how those things develop and just completely different things in different communities. Yeah. Well, I I mean, you you aren't going to go wrong by telling, and this will be a little bit in the FileMaker world, so I apologize if this bothers people. Um, In the FileMaker world, you aren't going to go wrong by telling a new developer to never, ever, ever use repeating fields. Eventually, Mm. they're going to learn that there are absolutely times when you should use repeating fields. Because they're better for certain kinds of problems. The trick is that they are never better for the kinds of problems that you want to use them for when you're a new developer. Yeah, exactly. Like the thing that it seems they're good for is not what they're good for. They're good for completely different problems. And so if you don't get far enough in first, you're going to have a problem. I'll give you an example from my own code is in FM Perception, I'm using a singleton to uh, manage registration. There's a shared registration controller, 
and I instantiate one of them at the application level, but I need things all over the system to be able to query this. And I don't necessarily want to pass a pointer to this object all over the place. And I don't want to run two completely independent registration controllers that are each checking with the server to make sure things are okay or something like that. That's all going to turn into a humongous nightmare. Mm-hmm. I instantiate one of them. Any other object in the system can go, hey, give me a pointer to the shared thing. And can go, hey, are we registered? Yes. Good. Thank you. Move on. Um, yeah. Otherwise, what ended up happening was, and this may just be my own lack of skill, so you know, take even that with a, a grain of salt, but it's entirely possible that I've done that wrong. Um, but it ended up every way that I tried to fix that problem without a singleton involved too many parts of the system, knowing about too many other parts of the system. Yeah. Like I had to be, I had to have this, this message passing chain all up and down the hierarchy of the system from the, the application to the, document controller to the individual documents to functions within those documents. I had to be able to pass this thing up and down back and forth and know that it was always going to be okay. And it was a huge amount of work to avoid a singleton. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one thing that I'm keeping a running list of things not to learn Mm -hmm. and things not to do in unity and Maya and it's the early stage that I'm in having, I'm new at this, but I'm not new at learning things like this. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've taught myself FileMaker. I've taught myself PHP and web technologies. And I know enough about the process to kind of look out for the gotchas and my own learning habits. Mm -hmm. And so I can, I can avoid, hopefully avoid the pitfalls of, let me give you an example. When I was learning iOS development and I was working in core data, I wanted I had like a month where I was just obsessed with doing it the right way. Mm-hmm. What is the what are the best practices around this? What is the right way to do this? Looking for almost a, a dogmatic approach, like I had kind of made for myself in FileMaker. Right. I, I when I make a database, I know what to do. I don't have to ask anybody. I don't have to think about it. I know you hand me pretty much any business case or issue, and I can figure it out and make a database out of it. And I was trying to use that same level of confidence in a place where I have no experience, and it, it turned into just weeks of me spinning my wheels and getting a little bit of progress, and then undoing it because it didn't seem right and just not understanding the design patterns and not understanding how Swift dealt with certain issues or the APIs dealt with certain issues. And I, I never made any progress on that project. It's still sitting half finished in a folder somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when, you know, when I sort of working on random arrow, it was much more of a, a problem solving. I, I treated the entire project as a series of bugs, basically like, Here's the things I want to do. These aren't working, so make them work and then move on and then loop back around and kind of keep making them better until I have something that I don't feel terrible about submitting to the App Store. So I'm trying to apply that same type of logic now, or the same type of learning now, where 
I just need to learn what I need to learn to, to ship something. I need to get the confidence of having shipped something in Daydream or on some VR platform. Um, and I don't want to just ship like garbage. I actually want mm-hmm. to have something fun that people would enjoy playing and maybe pay a couple bucks for. But at the same time, I'm not going to get obsessed over how clean the code is and I'm not going to open source anything to show people, you know, this is the best way to make this type of thing. Like, no, I'm mm-hmm. going to write the code the fastest way that I can. And if that means, you know, simple things like I, I read a lot today about the best ways to organize your unity project. And in my opinion, there's a couple of folders I'm going to use. And the best way I'm going to organize it is to not organize it and just use decent naming on things and search for what I need. And that is a great approach for someone like me working by myself with no other developers mm-hmm. or artists or anybody else on a small project. If I was working on a bigger project, I would need to reconsider that. Or if I was working with somebody else, I would need to reconsider that. But there was a book I read about a year ago called Algorithms to Live By mm-hmm. that really changed a lot of my obsession with organizing stuff. And especially the way that I deal with notes and email and managing projects now, I I almost want everything just in a chronological list, sort of descending. Like <laughs> If I could sort my entire life like that, that would be fine. Because anytime I open my computer and need something, it's almost always something that I was just working on within the last couple of days. Right. I really, really don't ever need to scroll very far. And then anything else I can search for. You know, things like spotlights and the Google Cloud search, things like that have gotten so good that I just don't need to organize in the same way. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to something I wanted to complain about, otherwise known as, you know what really deletes my semicolon, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> wow. What really deletes your semicolon? Um, forums. When forums... I really like forums. I like to mm-hmm. learn a lot from them. But this one is specifically pointing at the Unity community forums where they've got different forums for each different thing. And you've got to figure out which one of these giant cavernous rooms that you belong into for your specific topic. Mm-hmm. And I realized this is a huge platform and having some kind of organization is a good thing. But... Whenever I see a forum like that, it seems like 10 to 20% of the content in the forums is just somebody telling somebody else you posted this in the wrong place. Mm. Yeah, they almost need a forum where you can post your thing and they'll move it for you. <laughs> well, I think the better approach is just to have one general forum and a tagging system. Everything goes in the same place and tag it by the things that you care about. And then you just filter the list down to what the tags you care about rather than having separate places entirely. Yeah. Yeah, it just always kind of bugs me. I was thinking back to the FileMaker forum before they did their revamp a couple of years ago where it was just, it was basically the social media platform that I used at the time. Every day I would start my day off by loading that page up and just looking through what people had been having issues with and seeing what I could solve. Sometimes I had interest to post and sometimes I didn't. Mm-hmm. But I learned a lot from just looking at other people's problems and seeing how they were solved. Right. I'm, I'm trying to repeat that now with Unity. I'm like, 
well, I don't even know where to start. There's so, you know, there's 18 different categories to start on and they, they each have subcategories and some of them have subcategories. I'm like, wow, really? Can you just get a feel for what's going on? Anyway, so something else yeah. in the Ray Winderlich book was I tried my best to be open-minded about the section on Blender. And <laughs> it did not go well. <laughs> I really did. I, I thought about it the day before. I'm like, hey, this could actually save me 35 bucks a month if I can get used to this thing. And I know the quality of the tutorial is going to be good enough that I can learn from. And I'm not sure how far I made it. I, I, there's three chapters in this section. I probably made it through most of the first chapter. I gave it a good two hours. And I've got lots of highlights. And there was just the, there was a, a couple of highlights right off the bat. Like, this isn't just a me thing. Some of the, the quotes, um, this makes Blender very awkward to beginners, but you get used to it in time. That said, you can still change the left mouse button to both select and act on an object, as is common with almost every other application on Earth. Really <laughs> kind of snarky things like that. Uh, Blender is a free 3D modeling and animation tool. It is widely used and actively supported, but many game developers are immediately daunted by its unique user interface. Yeah, unique. <clears throat> it's not low quality software per se. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's. It's not like it's just like a bunch of pieces coupled together. There is a coherent method to this software. It's just made by people who think in a very different way than I do. And they right. use their computers in a very different way than I do. And I just couldn't wrap my head around it. There's even a mode in my or in Blender where you can switch Blender into working with Maya type controls. But doing that made it impossible to follow along the tutorial. <laughs> so I just so. gave up. So once you know Maya really well, maybe you take another stab at Blender using yeah, Maya controls, but probably not. Yeah, probably not. It was. It got pretty frustrating. I mean, my highlights are just highlights, but they look angrier as I go along and flip through the PDF. <laughs> like, like there's more yellows and reds. In the highlights and less blues and greens. <laughs> Actually, there's another whole topic that we should probably do at some point, which is how do you color code that stuff? I I have my own color code system that I use for different types of projects internally. And that's pretty much the only kind of color coding I do. Usually with highlights, I just use the default yellow highlight. But this book, I tried to get a little smart with it, but... Yeah, don't have much much coherency there. My own like personal system, I use yellow for anything personal. I use orange for anything program-related. I use purple for FileMaker stuff. I use blue for anything related to my company. And those are pretty much the core colors. And uh, I thought it was kind of funny when I moved to using... Google Keep, there is no purple, so I can no longer take any notes relating to FileMaker. <laughs> and you're kind of okay with that. Yep, for now. 
Yeah. So the rest of the book, let's see. Then there was, so I, I, I tried and utterly failed with the blender section. The tower defense game was actually kind of a fun game to make. That was the one where the teaching style was a little bit different and I'm not sure if I would code in the same way or, or lay out my game objects in the same way, mm-hmm. but it was a fun little game to make because it was just a tile based game where you just, you know, you point and click out a tile to tell where you want t- uh, towers to spawn. And, you know, it's pretty, pretty much just on autopilot from there. Really small game, mm-hmm. but uh, it was kind of fun to make. And then, uh, yeah, after that, I was just finishing up the appendices. And so I finished up all that Monday and Tuesday and rewarded myself with copious amounts of ice cream and anime and not doing much for a day. And then I spent some time um, just diving into the project that I'm working on. I did a little bit of prototyping and just testing and getting some basic stuff working with the Google VR mm-hmm. APIs. And I got just far enough to discover what may be a bug or may just be an undocumented change in the API. But two of the classes that are listed in the API documentation, one of which is I found is missing because it's in a tutorial that I was trying to work through. Mm-hmm. It's just gone. These, these two script files are just no longer in version 1.7 of the SDK. They're in 1.6. They're not in 1.7. There's nothing in the release notes that says that they were removed or changed, and there was nothing on the GitHub issues. So I I posted an issue about that this morning. But I was kind of like, I don't know what to do. Do I I need these things? They look important. Yeah, I always love those those bugs, particularly mm-hmm. the beginning of your work, because you just don't even begin to have the ability to identify where the problem is. Yeah, and I, I tried, you know, the, the heavy handed approach of like I'll just copy it, I'll just copy the files into the project from the old SDK. No, 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 no. Way too many things have changed. And, you know, there were dozens of errors in the file as soon as I opened it in Visual Studio. Like, okay, so definitely something has changed, but I'm not seeing the change recorded anywhere. And their change log is really, really detailed. So I'm thinking they just, like an entire line just got clipped or something. It's not like they're being ambiguous. So hopefully I'll have an answer to that. Um, you know, I tried, you know, just my troubleshooting mentality. I tried copying in the old files from the previous SDK. I mm-hmm. tried importing it into a new project and using the Unity Assets importer, which is the way I got it the first time. See if they showed up that way, weren't there. I tried downloading the source code <coughs> and unzipping it and rifling through that and still didn't find it. So yeah, they those two files are just gone, and there's no documented reason why they're gone. They <laughs> haven't been renamed to anything else that I can find. And they're kind of important. I will have to figure that out this week, or have hopefully somebody get back to me on GitHub. Um, but yeah, then I, I pretty much just... I didn't 
work too hard the rest of the week. It was just a little bit of prototyping and kind of writing out what I want to accomplish with the project, but in not a, not in a ton of detail. I really just wrote out what do I want to accomplish in the first iteration of this thing, mm-hmm. kind of thinking what what you had kind of hammered home many times last year, which was just get to the point where you can find out if the idea is fun. Right. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do here is just, I've got an idea. I think it's going to be fun, but I need to actually prove to myself and to other people that this thing is fun. Even if it's super basic and just, you know, blocky primitive objects is the idea fun. Mm -hmm. And then if it is, Kind of go on from there. I'm not sure how long that'll take. Maybe that'll take me a week. Maybe it'll take me two weeks or three weeks. I don't think it'll take me that long, but I have no idea. Um, yeah, I pretty much just took it easy the rest of the week and spent some time watching anime and taking long walks and doing a lot of nothing and thinking and kind of enjoying it. So. Today I, I dove back into a couple tutorials and trying to get used to Maya a little bit. And it's just there's a lot a lot to take in. I like it. It's just a lot. So what's going on with you? Uh not a whole lot. I think we already covered that. <laughs> So we were going to, last week we alluded to talking more about Visual Studio. So you've been working on a an off-the-shelf software solution for developers who make custom applications in FileMaker. Mm-hmm. You, you built this massive database analysis tool, and you started it in Swift and got it working, and then you made a Windows version in C-sharp, and you've got nearly two years of experience working in both of those side by side. And I thought that's kind of a unique, that puts you in kind of a unique position. I'm not sure how many other people have that combination. Me neither. Um, yeah, there are, there are definitely things that are nice in Visual Studio. And there are things that are horrifying. Um, most of the things that are horrifying, I think, are usually on the interface side. Um, I'm really not a fan of the way the interface tools in Visual Studio work. Um, you mean the interface tools for creating interfaces or the interface of Visual Studio? The interface tools for creating interfaces. Okay. Um, there are effectively three different panes that you have to juggle between to get done what you need to get done. So there's a visual pane where you're laying out the components of your interface. And then there is the XML pane where they are taking the information about the interface object that you just placed and showing you the XML that tells it to put that object there. And then you can edit that XML to add capabilities or adjust things. So, for example, if you 
placed a button, it would get the button size and location from the visual side and just write that information into the XML for you. And then you could double click on that button and, you know, type in the label that you want the button to display. And that totally works. And it would again, update the XML for you. But there are things that you can't do from the visual side. At which point you either have to do them in the inspector on the side or you have to do them in the XML. But to do them in the XML, you kind of already got to know what the tag is. Like what tag or what uh, XML attribute will do the thing that you need. It's got some code completion. So if you've got an idea of what the thing is going to be, you're fine. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't know if you recall how horrifyingly confusing it was seeing... Uh, Apple's inspector in Xcode. Yeah. Like, oh, I just clicked on this object. Now there are six different tabs, seven, eight different tabs for yeah. things that properties that I can change on this object and none of it makes any sense. Well, functionally, so does Visual Studio. Um, yeah, the, the one in Xcode starts to make sense after a while, especially when you mm-hmm. realize you really only need three of those tabs a lot. Right. But, but I think... Unity is a good example where you can still have many, 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 many objects, sometimes hundreds of properties in an inspector without having a confusing inspector interface. Right. Like they've got that that grouping where you can just shrink things down into one lines, you know, property or what are they called? Attribute mm-hmm. groups or property groups. Um, where, yeah. Yeah. Visual Studio's inspector uses a kind of a disclosure area thing. And so there's three to ten different sections. And so you hit the disclosure triangle for that section and it'll display three to five properties. But at the bottom of that list of properties is a thing that says like more information. And you click that and another 30 properties pop up. Because it's trying to hide from you a bunch of the complication, but very often that's where I need to get into. Anyway, it's this isn't necessarily relevant to VR game development, so I didn't want to get stuck on on the visual side. As far as code editing in Visual Studio goes, I've been generally really pleased. Okay. Uh, the editor's been fast. Um. You know, like any substantive code editor, there are a a thousand settings. You know, things that you can toggle to make the editor operate in some different manner. And they are almost entirely inscrutable. But uh, Google makes a pretty good interface to figuring out what the thing is that you need to go find. Yeah. Um, the only huge annoyance that I've had with the editor is the insert slash delete mode shift (laughs) where there's a key command that you can hit in windows. And I still don't have the thing memorized where if you hit it, it will toggle such that when you type a character rather than just inserting it at the insertion point, 
it will replace the character immediately after the insertion point. It will delete the next character and replace it with the one that you're putting in. Now, I've played with enough weird code to understand that there are certain situations where you might need that, but it's getting down to like hex editing files where the edit that you have to do has to consume the exact same number of bytes. This is not a feature that I ever need from my text editor. Yeah. Except for the very, very rare situation, like once in 20 years where I need to do that kind of thing. And honestly, I'm going to use something else. But so there's this weird key command. I can't remember the weird key command. There's no option for me to turn off that toggle to just say, you know what? Never set it to delete. Always just do insert. And there's a little box in the corner of the screen that tells you which mode it's in. Clicking on that box has no impact on the mode. (laughs) Nice. It's like, I can see the thing that tells me I'm in the wrong place, but there's nothing there to help me fix it. Um, So they do have a pretty sophisticated key binding thing in Visual Studio. What you need to do next time this happens, figure out what the key command was and then change it in the key binding to like control alt and like nine other keys or something. Something that's almost impossible to do on accident. (laughs) That that might work. I think part of the, and you know, here's my additional caveat. I think part of the difficulty is probably being caused by the fact that I'm doing almost all my video, my visual studio development in, uh, a VM. So in parallels from a Mac. And so my problem is being caused when my muscle memory tells me to use a Mac key command while I'm in windows. And so it's parallels flip those modifier keys for you. It does, but that doesn't mean that I'm not doing something that it doesn't know how to deal with. So say I'm doing like, you know, Control shift something. Well, does it now flip those? Because it should be command something. Like I use a lot of key commands on the Mac side and I have a lot of muscle memory for those. So part of the difficulty is I'm not even sure what it is that I'm hitting. That's getting the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, but regardless, it's something that most people on the Windows side apparently never hit. But I, I hit it once on the razor and I just I didn't know what had happened. I did I didn't mm-hmm. diagnose that, that I had gone from one mode to the other. I just saw that okay, the text editor has turned into Pac-Man and is eating everything after it. So I just I did the only logical thing, which was restart the machine. And that fixed the issue. Yeah. And that should be called Pac-Man mode if it's not. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine if they leave everything exactly the way it is, but clicking on the little spot that says D-E-L should change it to I-N-S. Just Mm -hmm. do that. Just, it's not going to fix all the problems because you're still going to have people who don't know that that's what that's indicating. You know, it's just a little tiny box in the, like the lower right hand corner of the editor window. Um, so yeah, I mean, I did have, I had, uh, I've had a couple of crashes, one of which ate a file. 
Mm. Um, the crashes are annoying, but I, I've had enough experience with Apple's development environments to be kind of okay when the thing crashes. You just move on. But I had lost all my edits to a file since my last commit. And unfortunately, it was while I was doing a large-scale code migration. So I hadn't actually done a commit in the last thousand lines of code. Mm. You know, I moved over three functions, changed them from their Swift form to their uh, C-sharp form, and then would do a commit. And then move over another couple of functions, you know, a small, small family of things. Okay, now do a commit. You know, once I tested and everything was happy, that's when I would do the commit. And, uh, yeah, it lost like a thousand lines of migrated code, which took me an hour to reproduce. So it wasn't catastrophic, but it was really annoying launching the thing and bringing it back up. And that it knew that the file was there. It knew there was a file with that name, and that file had zero characters in it. It was just empty. It wasn't even corrupted. It was just dead. Mm. So, um, but again, not a recurring thing or anything like that. And, and the performance has been fantastic. L- dealing with large code text files in Visual Studio is dramatically faster than doing it in Xcode. Okay. Like Xcode gets really unhappy if I throw a, uh, you know, two or three thousand line source file at it. I would too. Yeah, I mean, part of the difficulty is that there are sections within my software that are dealing with complex structured XML code. And so it has to say, okay, what kind of node did we just get handed? Do something different based upon each of those nodes. You know, each of the options. The problem is there's 200 options. (laughs) There isn't a way for me to make this thing do a single function that's just 10 lines. And then another function that's 10 lines. And then another function that's 10 lines. And they're all really clean and really Somewhere there's got to be a big switch statement. No, clearly you need to write 200 classes. What's wrong with you? <laughs> um, yeah, not so much. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a weird use case. I get that this is not a normal situation when people are normally looking at good code. Um, I'm not even going to argue that this is good code. Works pretty well. It is beca- yeah, it is because it works. Yeah, yeah it works really fast, and it blows all of its competitors out of the water. So I would call that good code. Okay. Uh, well, then, thank you. But, uh, yeah, it, it's this is a thing that I get to deal with fairly regularly, is there's a couple of spots in the system where that happens. And so it's very easy with two or three hundred options to have two or three lines of code per option. And now you've got a thousand lines Mm, and I don't want to move, you know, each of those lines might be doing something special. So those are calling out to external functions. I could place all of those external functions in another file, but that's not actually helping me. 
Yeah. Like, I hate when the editor is trying to, or, or placing restrictions upon how I organize my code. Like, if I want to put 200 functions in a list because the all these functions are dealing with kind of the same node level and they're just repackaging kind of the same source data and spitting it out kind of the same way, but they're all doing something different with it. And I want to make those into a bunch of clean functions and they're all nicely lined up and well organized. That should work. Um, that's actually why I upgraded my computer was because it didn't work well on my six year old Mac laptop. Yeah. It started choking because the type ahead and code completion on Swift is doing compilation as you type to check your code. Well, it keeps trying to do that with a 3000 line file. And it reached the point where single characters, you know, I, I would type a five character word and it would go character, 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 character on screen. And that's the point at which we have to stop and do something yeah. else. That's not okay. Um, but I never had any of those problems with Visual Studio. And that's even running in a VM. Like, the performance has been fantastic. The type of head's really nice. It all works really well. Um, so, yeah, as far as that goes, I, I, I mean, I, I've been generally pleased. It's been fascinating to see the difference between the two environments and to get a sense for what that does to the platforms. Yeah. Like just getting started in the full Windows Visual Studio environment is really complicated because Visual Studio supports like 12 or 15 different languages. And multiple different kinds of interface uh, uh, systems, mm -hmm. you know, interface libraries, stuff like that. You know, you can still make with Visual Studio, you can make a Windows Forms app. You can make a WPF app. You can make a Windows 8.1 whatever. I can't remember what that was called. And then now in Windows 10, they've got the UWP, the Unified Windows Platform. And it's all just completely different visual display layers. Oh, and also command line stuff. And I'm probably missing half a dozen others. Yeah. Um, and trying to figure out how to get all of that in place so you can write your first program is a little fun. But it's all there. Yeah. I remember the first time I opened FileMaker and... You know, a friend gave me a copy of FileMaker and said, you know, teach yourself some of this over the weekend and we'll talk about it. And I installed it and did, you know, I made a table and made some records. I think without even going into made as a database, I did that just from the table view. And then I somehow I accidentally ended up in this weird mode where there was little green dots on fields. <laughs> I had no idea where I was. It was, just, it was uh -huh. called FileMaker layout mode. I know all about it now. But like just a tool that seems simple now because I'm used to it, it's it, it's good to remind myself that these things seemed incredibly complicated at first. And mm -hmm. you get used to it pretty quickly. You know, Unity, two or three weeks ago, I had no idea how to navigate around Unity. And now I'm pretty 
pretty confident and comfortable just getting around and figuring out at least where to go to find the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Maya is going to take a bit more time because there's so many more things to do there and they don't like to put labels on anything. <laughs> Everything is an icon. I'm like, yeah. can, is there an accessibility mode that I can turn on somewhere? That would be great. And words are still a thing that can exist in computer programs and toolbars, but um, yeah, it's just it's good to remind myself. Like when I opened Xcode for the first time a couple of years ago, I was like, I don't even know where to start. Thank, mm-hmm. thank goodness, there's Swift Playgrounds that I can write some Hello World code in to at least not feel like I've failed today. And then you know, a couple of weeks later, you kind of get a feel for it. Same thing with Unreal Engine and Unity and my experience with Visual Studio has been pretty basic because I'm running every all the code I've ever written in Visual Studio has either been for Unreal Engine or Unity. So basically just attaching things to game objects. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, all the code you've written has been C-sharp. I did some C++ stuff in Unreal Engine and I'm not sure if it's the language. I get a feeling that it's more the... The game engine, I mean, you've got the entire chunk of code for the game engine with an Unreal Engine project, and it's a lot of code. And compiling the code just takes time. Even mm-hmm. just make, making a new Unreal Engine project and making a Hello World app that just prints Hello World to the console, that can take you know 10 seconds to compile where I'm not running into that with C Sharp. And I think it's the way that I read about the different languages and how they compile differently and C sharp is a just in time compiled language and kind of you know shook my fist at my iPad and read something else. Um <laughs> that's that's the type of stuff you should explain to me. This is again, Joe doesn't have a computer science background and makes himself sound like an idiot on a podcast. But That's okay. Dave has a computer science background and makes himself sound like an idiot on a podcast. So yeah, but yeah. It's just different. I'm, I'm wondering if you've run into stuff where, like, you've got a pretty big project mm-hmm. and a pretty beefy computer. What are your compile times like? Just making regular changes and working. <clears throat> what's your What's your day like when you sit down? Are you waiting thirty seconds to five minutes for code to compile? Like it's the nineties or no, no. Um, most of my code is compiling. A couple of seconds, five seconds. Okay. Um, Another couple of seconds in really launching the app. You know, where it attaches the debugger and stuff like that. And then, and then the app comes up, you know, Uh, gosh, I, I I haven't actually timed it in quite a while because that wasn't the performance I was concerned with. So, I honestly don't know how long it takes. It certainly takes a little longer on the Mac side. Um, But part of that is further exacerbated by the fact that all of my code is currently in Swift 2 rather than Swift 3 or Swift 4. Mm -hmm. And so they're not still working, as far as I know, on making the Swift 2 compiler faster. (laughs) No. So I'm missing a year's worth of compiler optimizations. I wouldn't be surprised if they start introducing bugs in it to make you upgrade. 
that would be painful. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually I'm going to have to do it and I'm going to have to figure out where my problem is. I've got a bug when I try and do my conversion that just, just eight days about two months ago and couldn't resolve it and had to roll back. Um, I would be much happier if I was all the way up in Swift three and getting ready to do a conversion to Swift four. Um, but honestly, at this stage, I may just wait until they've got you know, somewhere around Swift five. Maybe we finally get the uh, code compatibility um, or binary compatibility. I'm not sure. So whatever yeah. the one is that makes it so that I don't necessarily have to rewrite it every time. And just do that big conversion one more time. Because we're talking 25, 30,000 lines of Swift code. Yeah, that's not to be trifled with. A, a little bit more in Visual Studio. Swift is less verbose than C Sharp. Um, the code is a little more concise, at least in most cases. I mean, there are a lot of colleges around. You could probably take this problem to a professor and like, look, this could be a really informative thing for your <laughs> students to learn. I'm willing to sacrifice my time and my, you know, my code to help you solve this issue with your students. <laughs> yeah, not be so very, much. It would be very noble of you. Yeah. Now, what it'll probably end up being is a um, Apple developer uh, support ticket. Um, <laughs> no, better idea. Take it to a game jam. And the, <laughs> it's the worst game there. <laughs> but you're in the environment <laughs> and that's your game that you have to make that weekend is is moving from Swift 2 to Swift 5 or whatever it is. Erg. And most of the conversion only took me a couple hours. Um I mean it 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 converted relatively straightforward. It was just that once it was converted it didn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, and I Chased it around for a couple of days, but couldn't make the thing work. So it wasn't, it wasn't technically a problem with Swift. It was now that I was running the newer version of Xcode, I was also getting a different compiler and I was getting a compile time or a runtime error that caused a crash. And I'm not in a position at this point to say, well, that's because Apple's doing it wrong. No, it's probably my code somewhere, but it's crashing in a weird spot. Anyway, that's not the topic at hand. Yeah. So the other difference that I saw with Unreal Engine and C++ versus Unity and C Sharp is the Microsoft IntelliSense was always struggling to catch up with Unreal Engine. Like, just opening the app for the first time that day, it's just going to sit there and think about Unreal Engine for two or three minutes before it starts offering code completion. And then you make mm. a bunch of changes and it's got to think and update. It's got three little animated dots that it would run through. 
And that was just a little tiresome. Like I just want to write some code and I have to wait or I have to misspell stuff or risk misspelling stuff or using the wrong names. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen that with C sharp. And I think it's just the difference. I, I'm not sure if it's the, the difference in languages or the, or the fact that you've just got this massive chunk of game engine code, but it was annoying. I know there are a couple third party solutions to get around that that I was probably going to buy eventually or will buy eventually if I do more stuff in Unreal Engine. But it was just kind of a a weird, just a weird quirky thing that I wasn't too thrilled about working in. But yeah, so far, I, I, I don't know. I, I want to solve more interesting problems in C-sharp. And I've been... Mm-hmm. You know, I've got the, a little solo learn app on my phone that I noodle in from time to time. It has nothing to do with Unity or game development, just C sharp in the abstract, mm-hmm. just solving little challenges. But uh, I just need to do more stuff with it. Yeah, just just like I used to solve my own problems or my business or myself using FileMaker, I need to do the same thing with. C sharp or C plus plus or Swift or mm-hmm. PHP, just other things I want to learn. Rather than make another FileMaker database for everything. And it sounds like a good idea until like I've just automated most of my system and the way that I work into like two or three apps. It's like I don't have anything to make anymore. Right. Like, I don't need a new books database. I don't need a new finance database. I don't need a time tracking app. I solved my time tracking app by stop. I don't track time anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> Solves that problem. Yep. So yeah, I think that's all I've got this week. Anything else you want to say? Um, so did you decide you didn't want to get into the tabs versus spaces argument? Absolutely not. <laughs> So that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm at VRHermit underscore Joe. Uh, We also have a website, VRHermits.com. If you could, like us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or your podcast player of choice. 